It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh my god. Oh my god. The figure's dead. The crazy thing is, then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer? Yum. Oh my god. Thank you very much. After that, I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling, which is fine by me because I always think there's a story to be told. But a word of warning from everyone around me Do not give this tape to Earl. Don't Give This Tape to Earl, a podcast whose very existence makes it blazingly obvious that someone gave me that tape, and I am doing horrible things with it. So we recently had a week-long stretch of insanely cold and repeatedly snowy weather. I did get to sit in the dark just a little bit, and therefore the cold, just a couple of times. Not sure if that was the rolling blackout thing or something else. I actually took quite a few precautions ahead of this, did a lot of laundry, including blankets and comforters, added a layer or two to my bed. I stocked up on more food than I would normally have gotten for a single week and plenty to drink as well, because I assumed that the roads were going to be bad and I would probably not be going anywhere. I paid attention to the forecast, I made some informed decisions, rather than panic purchases, and yeah, I got to sit in the dark for a bit, but there were a lot of people, especially in Texas, who had it a lot worse. I'm really just beginning to wrap my head around the Texas situation. They seem to go from, we don't need the rest of the country, to their own little third world country overnight. And I could probably spend the rest of this show going off about that, but I will spare you. Good news is, I finally have an office, or or at least better office furniture in my home office than I had before. But, uh, boy, did it come with a price tag. Now, might not sound like much. $25 office chair, $45 desk, both from Facebook Marketplace. The desk, supposedly unused, was in fact pre-broken by the previous owner, so I had to improvise. It was supposed to be an L-shaped desk. Because of how it was damaged, I managed to turn it into one long desk without a right angle. It's a construction that now features more screws, zip ties, and rubber bands than were called for in the original assembly instructions, but for now, it'll do. It's better than the original computer monitors perched precariously on a couple of plastic storage drawers and boxes configuration that I had before. Uh, The office chair is a definite improvement over the $20 Walmart storage ottoman that I was sitting on. And oddly enough, you know, I have my home office set up in my bedroom for reasons. This actually makes the bedroom larger and not smaller. But in the course of disconnecting and temporarily moving computers so I could put the desk in place, my main PC apparently died on me. An unrecoverable master boot record corruption on the C drive. I think that's really indicative of the physical death of that drive. I've tried using Master Boot Record recovery software, and at this point, basically, you boot the computer up with that C drive. It does not think it has a drive. So that drive is dead. I salvaged the data drives, including various program installation files and podcast data, uh, both mine and Roddenberry's, and I put them into an NAS box, meaning that I now had to order yet a third NAS box to 
restore my Plex server because what I pulled out of the NAS box to put this computer's drives into um, was part of the Plex server. So I've already got the third NAS box. The Plex machine is back up. A replacement PC is on the way. In the meantime, I'm editing podcasts, both mine and Roddenberry's, on uh, what I used to call the living room TV PC, which really mainly just drove what was on the TV in the big TV in the living room. It's starting out to be super slow and not very well suited to that task, but it's only a temporary measure until the new machine gets here. It's really made me question, would this have happened regardless of my getting that desk? Sooner or later, probably sooner, the answer is most likely, eh, yeah. A random power hit could have produced the same result, but for right now, yow. As much as I like having actual floor space for my feet, that $45 desk seems pretty damned expensive in hindsight. So... This has had a kind of a knock-on effect to me getting podcasts done in February. Um, Obviously, the priority is on the paid work, and it's been a struggle to get the Roddenberry stuff done, get get Mission Log edited, and to get Sci-Fi 5 edited. We'll talk about Sci-Fi 5 here in a little bit. So uh, getting a retrogram and a Don't Give This Tape to Earl done for... February has been it's been a little bit lower on the priority list, but I'm trying. I'm trying. This has also meant that when I ran out of the Phosphor Dot Fossils videos that I had recorded in late December, I believe it was, was the last time I recorded a batch of them, um, Phosphor Dot Fossils on YouTube just kind of ground to a halt, and I didn't mean for that to happen, but that that PC was my main audio-video production PC. So I'm going to have to set up something new. Um, all of the emulators were on that PC. The, you know, the ROMs and so on, those are safe because those were on the data drives that I have successfully transplanted to this NAS box. But... Uh, I'm going to have to reinstall every emulator I had. And I'm going to have to reconfigure every emulator I had. I'm going to have to reinstall OBS Studio. I'm going to have to reconfigure OBS Studio. I'm going to have to rebuild... You know, I still have all of the visual layer elements for Phosphor Dot Fossils, you know, which, if you've watched it... There's kind of an elaborate background. You know, there's there's little TVs and there's things in front of the TVs that are indicative of the time period of the games. And, you know, in the background, there's a flashing VCR with a <laughs> with a VHS tape sticking out of it that says Phosphor Dot Fossils on the spine. Lots of little details like that. That stuff is still there, but I'm going to have to rebuild those scenes before I can do any more Phosphor Dot Fossils. So... PDF is kind of taking an unscheduled powder for the month of February, and uh, probably a little chunk of March. My apologies. Um, Obviously, I was not expecting this to happen. It'll be good to get things back up and running as soon as possible.
lots of stuff going on in Space Moon. All three of the Mars missions that were launched to take advantage of the unfavorable alignment of the Earth relative to Mars, so they would all arrive in February of 2021 after only a seven-month trip, they all successfully arrived. Perseverance, Hope, and Tianwen-1 all arrived. Perseverance has landed, and signal has been received from the Ingenuity rotorcraft, which is like a, a tiny little Mars helicopter, kind of a drone thing, that is going to be independent of the rover, and will go for a few flights and see if it is even possible to you know, see if they have correctly assessed what it will take to engineer a small helicopter, robotic helicopter, that will work on the planet Mars. Um, that should be fascinating because that is a that has a direct connection to a similar rotorcraft that is being prepared for the next mission to Saturn's neighborhood, where they are hoping that that rotorcraft will operate on the moon Titan. Israel is launching the Bereshit 2 mission to the moon in 2024. This is basically going to be a second attempt at the mission profile of Bereshit 1, which got to the moon and then experienced some kind of failure during landing in 2019. Mission extensions have been granted to the InSight Mars lander and to Juno, uh, both of those were in danger of being shut down for budgetary reasons, but they are not being shut down. And Juno is being granted a mission extension to keep exploring Jupiter um, for as long as the spacecraft remains intact and able to return signals. Which, considering the fact that it dives through the thickest part of the Jovian magnetosphere, which will kill electronics because there is so much, there's so many charged particles flowing through that. Um, Juno, every next close pass of Jupiter could be Juno's last close pass of Jupiter. So they are trying to make the most of it, and they've also announced it is going to start taking close looks at Io, Jupiter's extremely, extremely volcanic moon. In other news, SpaceX keeps blowing up starships. Thank you for listening. talk about what I've been watching, listening to. Um, one thing I've been listening to an awful lot, more than I normally would, is myself, because I am a writer and a voice and an editor on the Roddenberry podcast Sci-Fi 5. Sci-Fi 5 is, the idea is really simple. It's five minutes of science fiction history focusing on a single topic every weekday. This is something that I have been involved with since 
the summer of 2020. Couldn't say a lot about it because it was a long way off then. Um, there were a couple of there were a couple of launch dates that got kind of pushed back to the beginning of this year, and it finally launched in January. Um, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. I've been extremely happy with some of the scripts I've written. I love what the other people who are doing voice work on Sci-Fi 5, I love what they do with my scripts. I really look forward to hearing how they read stuff that I've written because it's kind of, it makes it a whole new thing. Sometimes they find takes on it that completely surprise me. And it's it's great. Everyone is a an absolute pro and I have gotten to read stuff that I didn't write. And so I am always trying to be mindful, okay, you know, how I feel about my scripts, okay, someone else wrote this, let's do it right, let's do it justice. And so it's it's a lot of fun to put together. Um, and we just plan to keep doing it. The hope is at some point that it will pick up a sponsor or two, maybe. But for right now, it's just kind of fun getting to do this daily sci-fi history thing. Where have I heard that idea before? But this time getting paid to do it. So if you want to hear Sci-Fi 5... I will post a link in the show notes at thelogbook.com slash this tape, or you can just go to podcasts.roddenberry.com and look it up. That page has been redesigned, and it's really cool. We have lost a couple of luminaries in the world of you know media that I am very, very involved in. Uh, we lost Mira Furlan who was Ambassador Delenn on Babylon 5. If you watched Lost, you may also remember her from that show as Danielle Rousseau. But I don't think it's an exaggeration, and I don't think it's an insulting oversimplification to say that her defining role was Delenn. We have lost so many cast members from Babylon 5. It's just kind of... It's mind-blowing. Percentage-wise, there are more surviving cast members of the original Star Trek left than there are cast members of Babylon 5. And so we we have lost another one. And, you know, if, if we're making Babylon 5 to Star Trek comparisons, I don't think it's overshooting things to say that losing Mira Furlan it was a lot like losing Leonard Nimoy. I mean, she was a constant in the show from the pilot through the end, and she was sort of the conscience of all of the fictional characters on Babylon 5. From the world of music, we have lost Lewis Clark, who was the orchestral arranger on that stretch of classic Electric Light Orchestra albums from El Dorado through, I believe the last one he worked on was either Out of the Blue or Discovery. But that signature yellow sound that, no matter how Jeff Lynne tries to do it by himself in his basement studio, the sound of yellow that people think of, a lot of it was Lewis Clark's arrangements. 
He also went on to play with Electric Light Orchestra Part 2, which renamed itself the Orchestra after a lot of legal haggling with uh, Mr. Lin. And Lewis Clark was also the arranger who put together the the infamous Hooked on Classics album and singles in the early 80s. So, Disco Season 3, Star Trek Discovery Season 3 has wrapped up. I know that it kind of deeply frustrated some people, but I I generally kind of liked it. And after the past four years, the thing that I loved about this season of Discovery, I was ready for something inclusive, something where compassion is on display, and something where people care for each other. I've kind of been having a... I've kind of been having a... A very gentle debate with a friend of mine about whether or not Discovery is good TV. And I have a theory that there's going to be more of a question of this in the future as the context of Star Trek Discovery's third season fades. There's a category of shows that I kind of call earnestly inclusive, and this would include latest season of Discovery, Supergirl, Batwoman. These shows are going to have to be viewed in in years down the road through the same kind of lens of cultural context as some 60s Star Trek episodes like Let This Be Your Last Battlefield or... Plato's stepchildren, or the one where they're heading out to Eden. Yay, brother. The way to Eden. That's it. Modern viewers in 2021 look at Let That Be Your Last Battlefield through this lens. It is such an on-the-nose anti-racism message from the time that was so polarized that it had to be that direct. Now, are future viewers going to view recent seasons of Discovery, Supergirl, and so on that way, keeping in mind that these shows were reacting to the uh, sort of the policy excesses and zeitgeist of the Trump years? Or are people going to forget that? Just something to think about. Um, Wonder Woman 84 came out on HBO Max on Christmas Day, and again, perhaps giving stuff a free pass in 2020 that it might not have had any other year. I appreciated that Wonder Woman 84 was this light-hearted, fun romp, and not some grim, dark tale of the end of the world. I know there were some minor anachronisms, but I liked that it was just a fun superhero flick. And holy cow, Pedro Pascal's everywhere, isn't he? Uh, what else have I watched recently? In my mind. Now, this is a documentary about a documentary. Uh, Chris Rodley, in in my mind, talks about and shows raw film from his 1984 Channel 4 documentary, Six of One, which was about the prisoner. And there's a lot of discussion, and there are a lot of film excerpts demonstrating that Patrick McGuhan, who is the creator and star and writer of The Prisoner, really did not want to definitively nail down what The Prisoner was about and didn't want anything, including Rodley's TV documentary, to become The Prisoner's cliff notes. 
And so there's kind of this battle of wills in some of the vintage footage between Roadley and McGuhan that's um it's kind of interesting to watch and at the same time it kind of makes me a little uneasy because McGuhan's not here to explain or defend himself while Roadley is able to expound his viewpoint from you know today but, you know, there is no rejoinder from the McGuhan camp. Except, well, okay, I let me offer a correction there. McGuhan's daughter does show up both in in my mind and in the bonus features. Uh, there's a lengthy interview with her about her father and sort of growing up watching him work. So, okay, so McGuhan isn't completely unrepresented here, but still it's kind of like... You know, ooh, what are we what are we saying about a man who is not here to explain his side of things? Hmm. I also watched a movie recently from 2017 called The Spacewalker. It's kind of a docudrama filmed entirely in Russian about the life of cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, the first man to perform a spacewalk. Now, my first thoughts spring from the fact that I actually met Leonov in 2005 at a reunion of the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project crew members at the Stafford Air and Space Museum in Weatherford, Oklahoma. The museum was started by General Tom Stafford, who commanded the American side of that mission, while Leonov commanded the Soviet Soyuz spacecraft that the Apollo Command and Service Module docked with. Now, the spacewalker, the movie, fixates almost entirely on Leonov's life up to the 1965 Voskhod 2 mission, where he performed his historic spacewalk, so Leonov is shown as a younger man throughout the film, but the actor is just striking in how much he resembles Leonov in old photos. And keep in mind, I met Leonov as a much older man, and in fact, uh, we lost him in 2019. But the resemblance is uncanny, and it's a great movie. It doesn't really sugarcoat how much risk the early space explorers subjected themselves to. There's a scene where the spacecraft, long before it ever flies, is in a hangar, with technicians working in and around it, and something unexpectedly triggers one of the pyros, and sends one of those technicians flying, and he's dead by the time he hits the floor. I don't know if that specific incident actually happened or if it was invented for the film, but it's a great illustration of just how uncharted the territory was that the early space race was plowing through at full speed. I also like one of the following scenes where Leonov has just heard that this incident has gotten his flight indefinitely postponed, if not outright cancelled. He and his fellow cosmonaut that he was going to be on this flight with, um, Pavel Belyev, are at the cosmonaut dormitory in Star City, and Leonov has had a swig or two of vodka, which he's really not supposed to have in there. And so the bottle has to be hidden in a hurry because their boss shows up. But there's still a glass on the table, and hey, no problem, we were just having some tea. And Leonov is more interested in pleading the case for proceeding with the mission than in covering his backside but then his boss grabs the glass and drinks down what's left in it in one swig. And there's this pregnant pause where nobody says a word, but they all just kind of exchange glances. And their boss, the flight controller, gets ready to leave, and he says, that was very strong tea. And out he goes, and no one else says anything about it. The effects work for the recreation of the actual spacewalk are amazing, and they give you a really good idea of what Alexei Leonov saw and experienced. So, 
Russia has a bunch of movies like this. We've got The Spacewalker, we've got Gagarin First in Space, we've got Salyut 7, all of them docudramas. Salyut 7 is pretty fanciful, let's just say it takes some liberties. Where are the American equivalents of these movies? I mean, we have Apollo 13, we have uh, First Man, which was a movie that dramatized the life of Neil Armstrong up to and including the flight of Apollo 11. That's probably the closest thing we have over here to the Spacewalker. Um, there's the right stuff, which is, again, maybe a bit fanciful. And it also crams the entire Mercury program into a single movie. Why don't we have more of these movies, though? The first Skylab crew's death-defying attempts to perform repairs to Skylab, enough to make it suitable for humans to live in, that would make a fantastic movie. The first shuttle mission, especially with a salty rascal like John Young in the commander's seat, that would make a decent movie. And perhaps on the tragic side, the final flights of Challenger or Columbia would each make compelling drama, especially if you also include the decisions being made on the ground that resulted in what happened with those missions and their crews. I love this subgenre of movie, and the Russians really seem to excel at it, and I feel kind of like we're lagging behind a bit. It would be great to see the resources that have been thrown at, let's say something like For All Mankind, Let's direct that toward the first Skylab mission, where the great astronaut Pete Conrad said he was more scared for his life trying to repair that space station than he was at any point trying to land on or walk on the moon. Anyway, I can highly recommend The Spacewalker. Be prepared to read some subtitles, like I did. But it's, it's a neat, well-acted, well-made movie. I'm sure it glosses over some of the rougher edges of Leonov's life in Soviet-era Russia, but I overlooked that in favor of just how much it got right. I really felt like it was showing me this life-altering experience in the life of a man who, by the time I met him in person, he was an incredibly inspiring, forward-thinking man. Very inspirational speaker, if you ever got to hear him in person, by the way. He saw the Earth from space and noticed there were no borders visible from orbit. As far as listening goes bunch of soundtracks came out around the end of the year, the beginning of the year. Uh, since the beginning of the year, we've gotten the, finally, finally, we've gotten the Season 2 soundtrack to the Orville on two CDs from La La Land Records. Uh, we've also gotten the second EP of original songs from Licorice Quartet, which is not even a quartet. It's three guys who were former members of Jellyfish, and this kind of carries on that Jellyfish vibe. If you like, if you liked that band, you will like Licorice Quartet. Uh, we got a soundtrack out of the Doctor Who New Year's special, Revolution of the Daleks, which was fun. There were a lot of musical callbacks to prior episodes there. And now <laughs> this is kind of funny. There was a this was a digital only kind of single. Is a soundtrack for the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. Who does not need this in their life? There's one decent length track of the score, and then there's a track of Kelly Marie Tran and Billy D. Williams singing a Star Wars eyesed version of Jingle Bells, which is just, it's kind of hilarious, and I can tell already that this is going to work its way into my Christmas music rotation, which is very much not standard Christmas music. The fact that it's so weird earns it that place on my Christmas playlist for years to come.
So our main topic for this show is one that has been lined up as a main topic for an episode of Don't Give This Tape to Earl since I first thought of the show. And I've even had this outline done for years, and then I mislaid it and discovered it again, and it was like, oh, there, there was this whole show ready to go at any time, and all I had to do was look at the outline, kind of jog my memory, and record the show. So here we are. Let's finally let's finally talk about my memories of the first computer I ever owned and kind of some context to that. Now, I wanted a computer at a fairly early age. We had acquired the Odyssey 2 in I'm going to say 1980-1981 somewhere thereabouts. And, you know, there's a whole separate podcast about that called Select Game that you can listen to at your leisure. But the Odyssey 2 was a video game system with a membrane, you know, flat membrane keyboard. Um, And while there were hints that the Odyssey 2, you know, could be used as a computer, there was, in fact, a cartridge called Computer Intro that would let you uh, do very rudimentary... Uh, assembly language Odyssey 2 programming, I wanted a real computer. Uh, Games just weren't enough anymore. I wanted to program. Part of what it was is that I had started to figure out how the games I was playing must be working. You know, that there is a series of if-then statements to determine, you know, has object A collided with object B, what is the consequence of that collision? Does someone score points? Do you add points to that register? So I was already starting to think in terms of programming just in my head. And part of that came from the first computer I ever put my hands on, which was a Commodore Super Pet that lived on a kind of rattly AV cart at Eccles Elementary School sometime in 1980. Now, this was a super pet with with a proper keyboard, as we think of it, and not the weird kind of chiclet keyboard that the, the pet originally came with. Once I... I had read stuff about basic programming, and once I actually had some time on the... On the Super Pet, I began sacrificing recess time at school to stay in and program that computer. Now, this was not without consequence. I This was overlooked a couple of times, but after that, my teacher you know, kind of gently suggested to my folks at the next uh, you know, parent-teacher conference night, um, the kid needs a computer. He can, you know, he is figuring out how to program it. He is trying to program, you know, very simple games on it. He needs a computer at home. You know, if he's been asking for a computer at home, then, you know, I'm here to tell you as his teacher, yeah, that that might not be the worst idea. It might really lead to something. Now... Being as I was under the age of 10 at this point, 
I still I wanted something that was also a game machine, a, a better game machine than the Odyssey 2. Oh, I love the Odyssey 2. I still do. But what I had in mind was uh, the Commodore VIC-20, and if it was a year later, I would have been lusting after the C64. My parents wanted something that was more oriented to programming and something, and, and really, to them, that really was down to appearances. Does this look like, you know, a real computer? Now, I will drop a little spoiler in here and tell you that the reality is both playing games and programming as my chief reasons for wanting to own a computer uh, fell by the wayside fairly early on. Anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I believe it was Christmas of 1981 that I received a Franklin Ace 1000 computer. The Franklin Ace 1000 was basically a clone of an Apple IIe, the unenhanced Apple IIe. Now there was an yeah, you know, there was the stock Apple IIe that Apple itself released uh, as the successor to the Apple II Plus. And then there was an enhanced version of the 2E, which came, which didn't even exist yet. The enhanced version had 128K of RAM as opposed to 64, and it could handle a new operating system called ProDOS much more gracefully. The Franklin Ace 1000 actually got Franklin sued because it copied, it basically they reverse engineered the circuitry of the Apple IIe and copied it. And they also did their own version of Apple's operating system, DOS 3.3, and they uh, included, you know, Franklin, Franklin DOS as a floppy with every Ace 1000. And everyone wound up in court and Franklin kind of got their butts kicked. Uh, later, Franklin released both less powerful and more powerful Apple clones. Uh, the more powerful was the Franklin Ace 2000. There was also a version with one built-in drive, the 2100, and a version with two built-in drives, the 2200. And there was also a basically a clone of the Apple II Plus called the Ace 500, which um, obviously, well, you know, why would you step back? I can't imagine that that sold very well. But my my Ace 1000 was what was available right now, even with its incredibly noisy disk drive. Any time it started up unexpectedly and there was not a disk in there for any reason, it would make a sound that was kind of like what you would hear if you shoved a live donkey into a wood chipper. It was a terrible, terrible sound. And there was also this giant Borg cube of a color monitor that I remember uh, I was using for years after I was no longer using the Franklin Ace 1000. That was a great video monitor. It had RCA ports on the back for audio and video, and I wound up using it, um, you know, putting a VCR on it. Uh, you know, actually, usually the VCR was under it, and uh, that's what I would use to watch stuff if I was not actually uh, using it to do computer stuff at the time. I distinctly remember the software that my folks bought with the machine, and so this is what I got on that Christmas morning in 81. Um, 
Type Attack by Sirius Software, which was a a game that would supposedly teach you typing or touch typing. The Sierra Online port of Frogger for the Apple II. The AppleSoft port of Robotron 2084. And Zork 1 by Infocom, which was really the first text adventure to get widespread you know, widespread acceptance and attention. And of course, the, you know, the computer itself came with you know, various productivity software, you know, what was considered productivity software in 81, Ace Rider, Ace Calc. Basically, these were knockoffs of things like VisiCalc, uh, Ace Calc being a spreadsheet program, Ace Rider being a word processor, although really word processor at that time was more or less just a text editor. Now, I was already kind of acquainted with the thought processes that went into programming basic. Nevertheless, I accumulated Apple basic programming books very quickly, as well as um, magazines like Nibble that would have programs in the back that you could punch in and there would usually be articles accompanying them, you know, in lieu of commented code, which, why would you ever comment code and, you know, let other people know, you know, what the function of a particular line of code is? That would be silly. There would be articles accompanying the uh, the Nibble type-in programs that would kind of let you know in broad strokes, okay, this is what this part of the program is doing. I, pro I tried to program... Uh, many a very simple text adventure game in basic um, inspired by two things. I was inspired by the Infocom games, which Zork 1 was very quickly followed by a copy of Deadline, which I just... Deadline was a, a kind of a film noir murder mystery text adventure that I just... Uh, I wasn't as attached to that as I was to the more Dungeons and Dragons-y flavor of Zork. And I was also inspired inspired by a, uh, a game called Telengard by Avalon Hill, which was you know, very much a Dungeons and Dragons game that you could play by yourself. You you know you didn't have to have friends with dice. You didn't have to have a game master. You know, I I I was a socially awkward kid, and I did not know many people. You, this you have to keep in mind. Little sidetrack here, you know, as we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games and stuff like that. Um, we are talking about the height or near the height. We're in the ramping up phase of what is now refers, referred to in hindsight by pop culture historians as the satanic panic, where... Any any association with Dungeons and Dragons was rife with, you know, talk of black magic and just things kids shouldn't be dabbling in, you know, rather than it just being imaginative play. It, it's kind of funny because, you know, I, I still had my collection of Star Wars figures and vehicles and stuff at the time. What I was doing with those was essentially role-playing. Basically, it's a schizophrenic, schizophrenic version of role-playing because you are every character. And you're coming up with a situation on the fly that may or may not make any sense, and you may wind up just giggling your head off about it later. 
because, you know, R2-D2 and C-3PO are going to wind up in a terrible, terrible spot, and they get saved by, oh, here's Tweaky and Vincent from the Black Hole, uh, you know, and Tweaky from Buck Rogers, and, uh, and you know, that team-up between the Stormtroopers and the Cylons, well, that was thankfully short-lived. Um, there really wasn't a huge amount of difference between that and playing Dungeons and Dragons. But because you know, the whole black magic, you know, this is offensive to Christianity sort of thing had been attached to Dungeons and Dragons, there was a serious stigma. I, I had one friend whose mother forbade him to ever play Dungeons and Dragons with us. Now, I also had another friend who I played Dungeons and Dragons with at this tender young age, who you could tell was taking it perhaps a little too seriously, you know, and then you watch, you know, with your parents, you know, some horrible movie like Rona Jaffe's Mazes and Monsters. And, you know, it's like, okay, I, I this is the worst case scenario of someone taking it too seriously. The most frequent scenario of someone taking a game of D&D too seriously was... You know, this sucks. It's just not fun. You're taking, a, you're sucking the fun out of it. Thanks. So Telengard was very uh, inspirational to me, and you know, it showed me that you could do things like come up with a program that would roll D and D characters for you. Um, and you know, I actually, I remember doing a basic program that did just that. And I remember uh, there's a recent installment of You Don't Know Flack, where. Um, Rob O'Hara was talking about it basically having done exactly the same program. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we all I think we all did the the basic program that would roll D and D characters for us. And and over time you would refine that and learn to come up with a program that would not let certain attributes fall below certain limits. And it would still have only X number of attribute points to assign to your scores, you know, your strength, your wisdom, your intelligence, your charisma, your dexterity. But it would, you know, it wouldn't give you a complete stinker. Telengard would would occasionally randomly roll you a complete stinker of a character. And so in, in that regard, it was very, uh, it was very instructive. Adventure games on the Apple were awesome. I already mentioned Telengard. I already mentioned the Infocom games. Uh, the first Ultima game I played was Ultima 2, and that was, it reminded me a lot, ironically, my friend whose mother wouldn't let him play D&D, um, he had a TI-99 for a computer on which he introduced me to Tunnels of Doom, which was this fantastic little dungeon crawler game, and it's it's like somehow he had gotten his parents to get that for him for his TI-99 4A without letting them in on the fact that it's it's basically a it, you know instead of it being a roguelike it was a D&D like um Ultima 2 was the first hint I saw in the apple of something like that Ultima 3 though where you had your party of four characters oh yeah oh yeah Ultima 3 was like the apple version of Tunnels of Doom but better and it was amazing. And I probably need to do a whole other podcast about the Ultima games. And I have gone on about them at length on my Phosphor.Fossils uh, YouTube video series, which I will leave a link to in the show notes at thelogbook.com slash this tape. 
so you can go check out my Ultima ramblings there. Now, that being said, there are limits to what you can do in BASIC, and one of the tragedies of my Apple experience was I could never quite get my head around programming in machine language. I could not ever get to where I could think in hexadecimal. And that's kind of where me and programming as an ambition parted ways. Um for a lifetime. I mean, you're talking about, you know, everyone was thinking, oh, you know what, he's going to be a computer programmer. And then I found out, whoa, this is way harder than I thought it would be. And I got discouraged and I walked away from it. Part of the reason I walked away from it is that my primary use for computers took a very permanent sharp turn that no one had anticipated around 1983 or so because I learned of and badgered my parents into buying for me about a $300 peripheral called a haze modem. The idea that you could type messages to friends or even strangers on something called a computer bulletin board, that completely entranced me. And I could go down a whole other rabbit hole, but there is literally another episode of this very podcast devoted to stories of bulletin board systems, and I strongly urge you to rewind and listen to that one for, you know, more of this detour, because communicating online suddenly became the reason to own a computer for me in 1983. The idea that you could communicate online to other people and that you could to some extent, show off your creativity to other people without filters. You know, you're not just showing it to people at school. You're not just showing it off to your parents' friends. You're showing it off to complete strangers. And I really think that remains my main reason for owning a computer today. It really is. You think about what I do. I do graphic design by day. I do podcast production by night, and not even necessarily this podcast or my podcasts or podcasts that I'm on. These are things I do to express myself creatively or help others express themselves creatively. Using a computer and using a connection to the larger world through that computer. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed since 1983 except the speed of the modems and the power of the computers. And, you know, kind of what the industry standard formats are. There's another gadget that I got on my, uh, on my Franklin Ace 1000. It was, it was intended for the Apple computers, but it would work on the Franklin. It was a gadget called Computer Eyes. Now, I forget the name of the company that made it. But this was a strange little peripheral that you would plug into your joystick port. Now, we're not talking about an Atari-style joystick port unless you had um, a gadget... My friend Steve Woida developed called a joy port for the Apple. But otherwise, this meant popping the lid off the machine and plugging in a connector that looked like it was kind of a chip with a ribbon cable attached to it that the ribbon cable left through the slots in the back of the machine and ended up connecting to a cord that was connected to a joystick. But you had to seat that connector 
the pins, you know, very carefully in the holes. Don't bend the pins, and whatever you do, don't break them off. Um, but computerized plugged into that same joystick port. And it would grab video stills from an RCA video source, such as a VCR or a video camera, if you had one. We did not have one. Um, you would you could adjust the contrast. You could adjust the brightness. And so you would wind up with these black and white video stills. You know, very high contrast. Uh, 280 by 192 pixels. It had an incredibly slow scan time. Um, I found out later, once I did have a camcorder to connect to it, that you could get some really weird effects out of it. If you stood perfectly still in front of it and did something like move your mouth, you know, open and close your mouth while the thing is scanning, and you would wind up with this horrific <laughs> face. Um, this was early digital photography at its most primitive, and it just fascinated me endlessly. The idea that, you know, there was now this interface between the computer and the real world that it could look at what I was looking at and capture that and store it and preserve it. Now, a lot of what I was doing with it at the time, honestly, was um, pausing stuff on a VCR. And so, you know, I was experimenting with trying to get these high-contrast stills from episodes of Blake 7 and Doctor Who, which were the first things that I ever recorded on a VCR on a VHS tape. And um, it, it was just terribly interesting being there, you know, kind of... It, for, for one moment, I was on the bleeding edge of digital imaging, and it was very primitive very primitive. Now, did I ever succeed in programming my own games, which is supposedly why I wanted the machine? Yes and no. Uh, there were two, two big projects that I embarked on over time, and sometimes I would put them down and come back to them. One was called Project Expansion, uh, with the idea there being that you were in charge of exploring and colonizing the solar system. You know, you would start out with probes like Viking and Voyager and Mariner, you know, sort of the you know, the state of the art at the time. And you would send those out and there would be kind of a, there was a correlation between the amount of science gathered and the money that you would get to build a more advanced one and send it out until eventually you, the idea being that you could send vehicles with crews out. Um, this didn't get very far. It was obviously inspired by Project Space Station and a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that I had read very recently at the time, such as uh, Kenneth Gatlin's Illustrated Encyclopedia of Space Technology. I remember that being hugely influential, as well as the, uh, the Atlas of the Solar System, which... I forget who all's names appeared on the cover of that book, but I do remember that Sir Patrick Moore's name was very prominent on it. It's a cool idea for a game. I was really out of my depth trying to program something of that complexity. And if I had it to do over again now, if I were going to start programming a new version of this game now, 
which is not something I'm likely to do. I just thought I'd point that out. Um, I, I would try to make it more complex because obviously there is not a correlation between how much scientific data you gather and how much money you get to build the next spaceship. It doesn't work like that. There are dimensions of public relations and politics that really go into that. And um, actually, I've really a lot of the ideas I have been pipped to the post on by a board game called Extronaut, which was devised by Dante Loretta, Professor Dante Loretta, who is actually the principal investigator of the OSIRIS-REx mission that recently visited an asteroid, gathered samples from it, and those samples are now on their way back to Earth. So in a lot of ways, I was kind of relieved to see Extronaut come out because it's like, okay, there's Project Expansion as a board game, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's cool, and I can just play it and have fun. Well, well, I say have fun. It, it's very much like Monopoly. You can start some really good family arguments over a game of Extronaut. Another game that I got a lot further on was called Interstellar Trade. And it, the inspiration for Interstellar Trade was very, very obvious. Because uh, I'll just give you kind of the tagline of what I was thinking at the time. It's Taipan but in space, I kind of built on the solar system architecture that I had embarked on with Project Expansion. And then I started borrowing heavily on the trading and haggling and good and bad luck ideas from Taipan, which was, Taipan is still one of my all-time favorite games on the Apple II, even though it is so, so simple. But I added to this... Um, one of my favorite elements from Ultima Four: Quest of the Avatar, which was that your space freighter captain had a reputation score. Now, if you remember in Taipan, which is based on uh, trading goods along the China coast in the 17 and 1800s, Taipan allows you to deal in, you know, general dry goods and in silk which silk can be very profitable. You know it can be even more profitable? Drugs. Um, you, <laughs> I'm not casting a moral judgment. I'm just telling you how the game works. The In Taipan, you could take on shipments of opium. Now, if you had opium or arms, you, you had a much higher likelihood of being attacked by pirate ships that would want you to throw your cargo overboard in order to escape. Um, or they would just kill you and take your cargo anyway, because your ship would be in pieces. I tried to combine the the reputational element of Ultima Four, where, you know, if you went around hacking and slashing and just killing everyone who got in your way, um, people would not deal with you. And I tried to add that onto the elements of, you know, arms and drug trade from Taipan. So that if you dealt in those things, yes, you could make a lot of money, but word would start to get out, and you'd basically wind up with a price on your head. Um, there was some pretty complex math involved in figuring this stuff out, and the irony is, at about the same time I was programming Interstellar Trade, I was flunking Algebra. 
Algebra is the backbone of computer programming. And so I, I was at this weird juncture where I could not do algebra on paper because I couldn't get my head around some of the abstracts, but you put it in the form of a computer program and I could handle it without question. I could handle it in my head. And so, you know, here I was programming a computer game and flunking algebra at the same time. Um, academically, really not a good look. I still had my uh, my Franklin computers fired up because the time, I believe it was around 85, I got a Franklin Ace 2200. Now, the thinking there was that my older brother was going to take the Ace 1000 off to college with him, and that would help him focus better somehow in college. Um, that didn't happen, and the Ace 1000 came back to me fairly quickly. So now I had two computers, and I used the Ace 1000 to run a BBS, while I used the Ace 2200 to play games, program games, get on other people's BBSs, and um, and do stuff like that. Um, somewhere in there, I also started working on a little project called The Logbook, where I was keeping track of who was writing, directing, scoring, and guest starring in various episodes of this new show I was very fond of called Star Trek The Next Generation, and I was noticing that certain people were showing up in different roles, and I thought, oh, somebody... Somebody should track that, because surely no one else has thought of this. That's the genesis of the logbook, right there. It was a series of text files, and, it, and they were distributed by BBS, and eventually led to a very rudimentary website, which eventually led to the website you downloaded this podcast from. So, there you have the short story of the logbook. I still have my Franklins fired up as late as 1992 or 93, um, what pushed me over the edge was that I wound up with somebody's uh, spare XT PC. Uh, it had an amber monitor, you know, no no VGA, no CGA. You know, this was just an amber monitor. And I found that stuff like QEdit was a lot easier to handle than the word processors uh, native to my Apple II. And when I moved out of my parents' house, you know, I did take all my Franklin computers with me. And by now, they had been joined by other people's Franklin computers that had become outdated. And so people gave these formerly, you know, $1,000, $1,200 machines to me with monitors, with disk drives. Oh, you know, you seem to like these. Here, have this one. Yeah, I had this stack of computers that I was hauling around with me, and monitors. Uh, when I moved into my apartment in Garrison Avenue, on, on Garrison Avenue in Fort Smith, um, the Franklin computers were just driving displays that were running on green screen monitors, you know, just because I kind of liked having some futuristic-looking stuff going on in the background, which was kind of silly reason to run up the electric bill, but... Um, there you go. And this purpose, they continued to serve this purpose at my apartment in Green Bay. But when I moved back to Arkansas, th they still came back with me, but they went into storage. And then the only one that I ever used again 
was an Apple IIc that was missing its 6 key. Um, the rest kind of went to pieces in storage. And I have never seen my Franklin Ace 1000 again. But I still play Apple II games a lot. The Apple II is perfectly emulated in a program called Apple Win uh, in a Windows environment. Now, the software library that I had may never be complete. I may, I may never be able to duplicate it. Um, Type Attack is a game that I really can't find in a functional form, which kind of makes me sad because it's one of my earliest, most formative Apple memories. Uh, what games do I go back and play on it? The Ultima games, obviously. Taipan, Telengard, um, a game from Hayden Software called Final Conflict. And I've been discovering new games as I have done the Phosphor Fossils videos. Games that I've never played before. Stuff like Storm Warning and Beer Run and stuff like that. And there will always be another game out there that I haven't played. There is a new game. I bought a new Apple II game right before Christmas. It's kind of my Christmas present to myself um, called Nox Archaist. And it is very much in the vein of the early Ultima games. And we'll talk more about that another time because once an Apple user, once an Apple gamer, you're always in that Apple II world. You never really fully leave it. We now take a break from contemplating what it sounds like when you shove a live goat into a wood chipper for a word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. Okay, so goodies. There are always... I've always gotten some goodies. Well, not always, but... Um, since this is the first edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl, it's been recorded since Christmas. Yeah, I got some goodies. <laughs> In some cases, I got myself some goodies. Um, the new Hasbro Kenner-branded Marvel Legends Retro Series. This is something that I... Uh, was not even aware of until I saw an, I think it was a Facebook ad for Hasbro Pulse, you know, the Hasbro website, uh, announcing that these things existed, that there was going to be a Kenner-style uh, five-point of articulation retro Marvel Comics character line. Uh, basically, they're kind of creating out of thin air a Kenner figure line that never existed. 
but I am totally letting them get away with it because of the awesome, you know, classic comic art on the packaging and on the outer boxes because each pair of figures comes packaged in this really sturdy outer box that reflects which characters are inside it. And the figures themselves are fantastic. I mean, they're just they're just amazing. I, I really kind of want to get a second set so I can open them up and, you know, just have 70s Iron Man, you know, uh, you know, hang out at the arcade with Ron the Space Knight, whatever. It's, um, those are really neat. They are better than I thought they were. They, they put me in mind of the, um, the Mego Pocket Superheroes line from the 70s, which was also three and three quarter inches which I dearly loved, but only ever had a few of them. And most of what I had were DC characters. So it, now I kind of want, you know, a retro DC line to go with these. You know, I want Christopher Reeve Superman. I want Linda Carter Wonder Woman. Um, you get the idea. We already have... Uh, Adam West Batman finally as an action figure thanks to Funko, but I want more. You, you know, I just I just want to mix and match my superheroes regardless of publisher, um, and just bring all these team ups that I used to think of as a kid alive. I got a batch of uh, figures from Super Seven, the makers of reaction figures. They did a buy five, get a sixth one free sale at the end of the year. And see, I got a couple of Planets of the Apes characters, Planet of the Apes characters. I got Ash from Army of Darkness. I got one of the zombies from They Live. I got Robocop. And, and, I got the Chet creature from Weird Science. The Weird Science reaction figure, it's funny because you would think, oh, cool, they're they're doing three and three quarter inch action figures for Weird Science? Awesome. Where's Kelly LeBrock? There is no Kelly LeBrock figure. There is no Anthony Michael Hall. Um, it, none of the human characters are represented. This is just the creature that Bill Paxton's character gets turned into. It is an action figure line of one, and I kind of love it. I, I kind of want to open that one up, too, because... You know, how great would it be to put that guy in the gunner's seat on the top floor of the Kenner Death Star? This sudden burst of action figure activity, by the way, right at the end of the year, kind of made me reconsider how my wall was set up behind me that you uh, will see sometimes in the background of my YouTube videos. So I moved some of my Doctor Who stuff because the larger figures... Uh, you know, the larger Doctor Who figures have larger packaging that was breaking up what was otherwise a, you know, a fairly orderly grid. So I, um, you know, this batch of Super 7 reaction figures and the batch of the Kenner retro-style Marvel figures kind of uh, made me rethink my display scheme a bit. I also got... Um, because I was able to stack numerous discounts on top of the Black Friday sale. The XL Orville from Eagle Moss. It's actually a bit smaller than I thought it was going to be, but it is still a fantastic detailed model. And it reminded me how much I still want the 
the Enterprise as reimagined for Star Trek Discovery in that same size. Now, here is something that um, nobody saw coming. There is a port of fantasy, the Rockola arcade game from 1982, my all-time sentimental favorite coin-op game. There is a new version of it on cartridge for Intellivision. It comes with a box, there's a manual, there's an overlay. I, I don't even have an Intellivision at present, but it's fantasy. And so I had to get a copy of this. It's still sitting in the box. I may open it someday. But for now, it's just... It is like exhibit number two in my, in my collection of... Or actually, exhibit number three. I have a, a marquee from a fantasy arcade game. And I have the printed sales flyer that Rockola distributed to arcade operators to entice them to buy the fantasy arcade game. So this Intellivision Port of Fantasy in its box is like exhibit number three in a very small collection of an extremely obscure arcade game. I love it. Now, speaking of Intellivision, Amico, the Amico console, has now been delayed to October 2021. I'm okay with this. Uh, I'm not really getting the people who aren't okay with it. Uh, I mean, are we so entitled that we are not aware that we are all living through the mother of all supply chain disruptions right now? On a purely selfish level, while I will be happy to get my Amico and play some Amico games on it, um, I'm kind of happy under the present anything but certain circumstances to, you know, have even further time to plan for the budget disrupt that the second payment on the Amico will mean for me. So, Amico, Intellivision Amico is still coming. It's not coming uh, in April, as was announced last year, but I'm I'm really kind of okay with that. The gameplay demos that they are posting video of really look kind of awesome, and I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, to my new <laughs> my new Intellivision hardware that will be coming at some point. As a Christmas gift, I got the first two issues of the Plaid Stallions Toy Ventures magazine. Now, this is a very cool retro toy collecting magazine from the gang at the Plaid Stallions website. And the funny thing is, the this magazine makes me feel like I am just dabbling, <laughs> which I really am. I don't aim to have a comprehensive collection of everything ever made in any particular toy line. I enjoy what I have. I add to it if I see a character I really want, or if an opportunity or a deal arises. I'm very much a lightweight compared to the people writing for this publication. I really enjoyed the article, uh, particularly about the Dennis, the Dennis Fisher Doctor Who um, eight-inch figures from the 70s from the UK. Uh, there were more of those than I thought there were, and they're just kind of adorable, like the, the Cyberman with a nose. Uh, speaking of Doctor Who figures, I have picked up uh, an additional set, and I think I mentioned this set in the previous edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. Terror of the Zygon set, which features 
you know, Tom Baker, you know, decked out in Scottish garb, plus Sergeant Benton and a generic unit soldier who, you know, he can now be your red shirt. <laughs> he can be zapped by the the three doctors gel guard. It's okay. You know, you now have a non-essential character who can die on that hill. Um, turned up on Amazon for 25 bucks for three figures when I'm kind of accustomed to, you know, the six-inch Doctor Who figures from underground toys or character options, I'm very much accustomed to those coming in for, you know, about that that much a piece. So a set of three of them for 25 bucks, yeah, cool, I got it. Um, another thing that I got since the beginning of the year, action figure-wise, is this is a Star Wars set in the, the vintage collection packaging, but it is a set of Din Djarin from The Mandalorian, it decked out in full Beskar with Grogu. And here's the thing. I, I love the vintage collection, the, the old Kenner-style packaging. But since you have Mando and Grogu in this set and accessories, the bubble is incredibly wide, and the space for the photo has been reduced to this ridiculously small sliver on the right side. And so it's actually, you know, as a carded figure, it's butt ugly. So this one I am almost certainly going to open. Um, among the accessories, you know, Mando has his weapons. It, he also has a Comptono to hold all of his Beskar in. So that's really cool. I haven't seen that as an accessory before. So um, that's out there, and apparently it's a, it's a limited edition thing. So, you know, like an absolute Philistine, I'm going to crack that one open. Now, going back to talk of uh, Super 7's reaction figures, Super 7 is going to release two waves of 3 and 3 quarter inch Star Trek The Next Generation figures this year, one in the spring and one in the fall. Now, this is not a first for that intellectual property at that scale, but the 3 and 3 quarter inch Galoob figures that came out around the time that Star Trek The Next Generation first hit the air, they were kind of woeful. Uh, you know, Tasha Yar had a giant head, Worf had a tiny head, and everyone had one hand that was permanently a fist. Which, you know, I'm sorry, that's... Uh, you could get away with, uh, you know, doing Kirk-era Trek like that. You know, because, yeah, Kirk's gonna punch somebody. Picard? Data? Data's going to punch somebody? Really? Uh, the Galoob figures... Um, you know, I've got a set of them on the cards behind me on the wall. I'm glad to have them. They also look kind of silly. But Super 7's uh, first wave of Star Trek The Next Generation reaction figures is going to try to solve that problem. Wave 1 will consist of Picard, Worf, Data, Guinan, Wesley Crusher, and a Borg. Now, I'd like to think that Riker and Jordy and Troy and Dr. Crusher are shoe-ins for the second wave. I'd love for Super 7 to get the master toy license at this scale for all of Star Trek. I know there are Migos for Star Trek Discovery, but I've really kind of limited most of my figure collection to the smaller form factors. Most of my collection is 3 and 3 quarter inch, also known as the Star Wars scale. Uh, I have a huge number of the 4-inch Playmates Star Trek figures which covered the original series, Next Gen, especially Deep Space Nine and Voyager. 
and I have a large number of these 6-inch Doctor Who figures. I would really like to get some figures from Discovery, Lower Decks, Picard, Enterprise, really everything, since this is a new scale. Uh, I really liked the Super 7 reaction figures for the original Star Trek, my only complaint being that we never got Chekhov or Nurse Chapel or Yeoman Rand or some TOS Klingons and Romulans. If Super 7 wanted to dip back into TOS real quick and solve that problem, that would be great. I'd be all for that. Uh, Super 7 has also announced that there will be uh, three and three-quarter inch reaction figures of Godzilla characters and Run DMC. So never mind Kong versus Godzilla. Pretty soon we're going to be able to stage a battle between Godzilla, Wesley Crusher, and Jam Master J. Now, I don't even know who to put odds on in that fight. Okay, not Wesley. Or wait, is this Wesley before or after he goes off to hang out with the Traveler? Because that might change things a bit. And last I checked, Godzilla cannot think somebody into subspace. Jam Master J might, though. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Don't Give This Tape to Earl, give a big thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley. That's a bunch of people. If you love Don't Give This Tape to Earl, join them as a patron or support us another way. Every little bit helps keep thelogbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. Find out more at patreon.com slash thelogbook, or if you want to help out without the ongoing commitment, throw a coffee our way at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, socks, face masks, and other goodies, including shower curtains, from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, where you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. If you need to stay current on Star Trek Discovery or Lower Decks or Picard or whatever the next show is going to be that they do, you can sign up for a free week of Paramount Plus through our links, and if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps thelogbook.com and don't give this tape to Earl out a lot. If you can't remember those links, that's cool too. Visit the show page at thelogbook.com slash this tape, and you can find them all there. Don't Give This Tape to Earl is a production of thelogbook.com. Sci-Fi 5 is the newest show from Roddenberry Podcasts. Five minutes of sci-fi history in every episode, delivered to you every weekday from the first name in science fiction. Get to know the creators, the background, and even the science behind your favorite stories. Our rotating panel of hosts bring you some of the least known details about some of our best known popular culture. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. Then get ready for a full year of great stories only on Sci-Fi 5.